uh, this young man decides to go excuse himself to the restroom. He goes into the restroom. He calls up his best friend. He says, look, do me a favor. Just don't ask questions. In 10 minutes time, give me a call. That's all you need to do is give me a call in about 10 minutes and, and I'll take care of the rest. No problem. All right, comes back. The date continues. In exactly 10 minutes, his phone rings. He answers the phone in the middle of the date. He, he gets a worried look on his face. He says, Gavald, oh no, thank you for telling me. I am so, so, so sad to hear that news. He hangs up. The young lady asks this young man, what happened? Is everything okay? He says, no, everything is not okay. Uh, unfortunately, my, uh, my, my, my grandmother just passed away. It's a sudden shock. She just passed away. I have to run. I have to go. I'm so sorry. So the young woman says, whew, I'm so happy. The young man says, why are you happy? So she says, because if your grandmother didn't die, mine would have had to. Anyway, that's, you got it? Who's doing the, the rim shot here? Where's Jerry? All right. There you go. All right, we got the rim shot. Yeah, so that's a little bit about dating and relationships, but also a little, a little bit about um, death and mourning, although that, of course, was not a, uh, uh, a, a, a real story. This course is called Journey of the Soul, and the course is all about life, death, and the afterlife. And I would venture to say, I don't think I'm going out too far on a limb when I say this, I'd venture to say that over the last, I don't know, 10 months or so, over the last uh, you know, year or so, many of us have thought about our own mortality more, more, uh, more frequently than perhaps usual. And the reason is simple, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and uh, thoughts of, of mortality and thoughts of, 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 of imminent danger or danger are in many of our minds. And it's normal and it's natural. And the truth is that even without a pandemic, if you've walked a few miles on this earth, then it's impossible to go through life without experiencing illness and pain and loss. It's not possible. It's, it's just not, not possible to go through life and not experience these, these realities. And the reality of this reality of life, in other words, the reality of life ending, brings up lots of questions, very important questions and very good questions. Questions like, what happens when we die? Questions like, is death the end? Is death painful? Can we remain connected with those whom we've loved and lost after their passing? Um, do our loved ones, can our loved ones communicate with us after they're gone? How can a person heal after a devastating loss? How can we comfort others who have experienced loss in a, in, in, in a beneficial way, in a helpful way? Is there a heaven and a hell? What is heaven? What is hell if they do exist? Does Judaism, do Jews believe in reincarnation? And what is the ultimate destiny of the human being and the soul. These are some, some, just a few of the questions that we are going to address over the next six weeks in this epic course, Journey of the Soul. 
They're all good questions, and they're all questions that are well-trodden, well-explored in the Jewish tradition, and I am very excited to share with you a Jewish perspective on life, death, and the afterlife. You should know that all of the, all of the material that we're going to explore in this course, it's all taken from classic Jewish sources as well as Jewish mystical tradition. So, and, and you, can, you can see the, the sources as we go through the text. You'll see for yourself, whether it's the Talmud, the Medrash, whether it's Scripture itself, whether it's uh, the Arizal, Kabbalah, you'll see for yourself where everything is coming from. But in case you're wondering um, whose perspective is this, where does it come from, classic Jewish traditional thought on these topics. And our intention in this course, just I want to lay it out there, is not just to know what happens at the time of death or after death, but to radically transform our understanding of what life is. It's not just about death. It's also perhaps primarily about understanding life and also to help broaden our capacity to live a life with meaning and purpose and connection. So before we jump into our first lesson, I want to give you a very quick overview of the six lessons in this course. Lesson number one, which is tonight, we're going to explore the definitions of life and death. What is life and what is death? In lesson number two, we're going to explore the journey of the soul from the moment it departs from the body. In other words, what happens at the moment of death and onward for the soul. In lesson three, we'll speak about grief and consolation. What does death mean for those who remain behind? And how can we who remain behind be comforted and consoled after the loss of, uh, of a loved one and after the hole that is uh, the gaping hole that remains in our life? In lesson number four, we're going to explore the afterlife, heaven and hell. In lesson number five, we're going to explore the contours of the Jewish position on reincarnation. And finally, in lesson number six, we're going to talk about the ultimate destiny of the soul and the ultimate destiny of human beings. So that's a little bit of an overview of the six lessons. Each one is packed with, with, uh, with, 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 with information that's not only stimulating intellectually or philosophically, but also information and wisdom and guidance that can help emotionally as well as guide us practically in our behavior, both in life and in preparation for the end, um, in helping others deal with transition, and in being comforted after the loss of loved ones. All right, so that's, that's the introduction, a bit, of a, a bit of a lengthy introduction, but I felt that it was important to lay out all of these items before we, we really jump into the material. So let's begin. Let's begin our conversation by talking about how we feel about death. So I want to open this up to all of you, and you can unmute yourself. Um, I'm looking for one word, so not a sentence, not a paragraph, one word that you associate in your mind or in your heart about death. One word on death. Please unmute yourself and, uh, and jump in. Thanatopsis. Okay, good. Loss. Good. Stillness. Okay, stillness, good. Finality. Finality. Good. Gone. 
Gone, okay. Okay, good, good, excellent. What else? Excellent, okay, good. What else? Uh, sorry, I didn't hear. Regrets. Regrets, okay, good. What else? Fear. Fear, okay. What else? Scary. Scary. Yeah. Unfinished. Unfinished. Ari, Rabbi Ari, I read ahead. I'd say going home, but that's two words. Going home is two words. So you can say home, but okay. All right. What else? What else? Excellent. Nothingness. Nothing. Okay. Unknown. Unknown. Peace. Peace. Is that what you said? Peace? Yes. Peace for the deceased. Peace. Okay. Okay. Excellent. What else? Grief. Grief. Certainly grief. Yeah. Infinite. Sorry. Say it again. Did you say infinite? I infinite. Yeah. Infinite. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Um, all, all words that I think are very appropriate and all, all words that I would say are very powerful. Did anybody else want to add something? I'm sorry? Reunion. Reunion. Okay. So I want to speak about one specific... What? Sorry? Ascent. A-S-C-E-N-T. Ascent. Okay. Good. Excellent. All right. I, I want to share with you the following. One of the strong, one of the words that came up a few times, a few of you said this, and one of the strongest reactions that people have when thinking about what, forget people, let's talk about us, right? Let's, let's not speak theoretically. One of the most common emotions that you and I have, that human beings have, that we have, when thinking about death, and specifically thinking about our own death, is the emotion of fear. Now, I need to say this. I'm not suggesting that you and I are living constantly 24-7 in fear of death. I'm not saying that that is um, it's something that, 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 that paralyzes us, that we can't function, although that's possible that that could happen. But in general, it's very common, it's not uncommon, that when a person thinks of their own mortality, a sense of fear or at least a sense of sadness kicks in. And I want to ask you to unmute yourself one more time. This is a question. It's not a one-word answer. But tell me why a person might feel a sense of fear in thinking about their own mortality. Why might a person feel a sense of fear in thinking about their own mortality? Jump in, please. The you don't know where you go. Okay, the unknown. Okay, what else? It's more like, leave, what am I leaving? Did I, did I leave it good? I'm afraid maybe I didn't say or do the things I should have. Okay, so fear of regrets. Okay, what else? I think being gone without the traits. Yeah. Gone. Okay, what else? Is it going to hurt? Yeah. Did I finish up? Did I finish up? Is it going to hurt? Okay, good. What else? Um, 
Am I leaving behind, like, vulnerable family? Or... For those that are leaving behind, are they taken care of? Yeah, yeah. Are they taken care of? Okay, excellent. What are they going to say about me? What are they going to say? <laughs> right. What are they going to say about me? I feel you, like I yeah, you, you know the joke about that, right? You know the joke about, I forget how it starts, but it's, uh, it's the, the, the various clergymen that are talking about what they want to be said at the, at the funeral. The punchline is the rabbi says, what do I want them to say about me? Look, he's moving. I mean, so look, right? There's all, all sorts of different... Uh, Different things that could be said. Halavai, right? Halavai, we live forever. Halavai, eternal life. But I think many of us, when thinking about mortality, when fear comes in, when a sense of dread kicks in, and we try to push it away, a healthy human being, I would say, typically pushes away those thoughts and feelings because who wants to go there? Who really wants to go there? Can you live in that space? Right? Can you live in that space? Right of 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 this of this fear of of this fear of death. It's very difficult, and it's not it's it's not, it's not a uh, it's not a sustainable place to, to to be in. But why the fear? We had a lot of good ideas that were shared. I want to share with you my thought, and I and I think it's well grounded in both Jewish thought as well as psychology, and that is a key a a, a major ingredient, an essential ingredient in a human being's fear of death is the fear of not being. Is the fear of not being anymore. The fear of everything coming to a crashing end. The fear of what we had being lost. Our awareness being taken away. In other words, essentially, at the core of fear of death, is not necessarily fear of the unknown. Yes, that is a fear, but people take road trips all the time to where to, to cities they've never been in, and that's an exciting thing. That's not necessarily a, uh, a fearful thing. The fear of death is a little bit different. The fear of death at its core is, it, it can be traced, can be attributed to a sense of loss of losing what one is or what one has. There's a name in psychology, or there's a name for, the, for, for this fear of death, thanatophobia. Thanatophobia is a fear of death. Psychologists today assert that much of human behavior <coughs> revolves around this fear of death, whether we're aware of it or whether we're not aware of it. You know, sometimes we're aware of how we feel about it, but sometimes not. For example, people that want to leave a legacy or people that want to do big things. Psychologists will say, why do you want to do something that makes an impact? Why do you want to do some, something that's memorable, that's impactful? So that it leaves a legacy. So that we're not gone when we pass. So that something is left after we're gone. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the only motivation to doing something impactful, doing something good. But what I am telling you is that psychologists have, have posited that much of human behavior is driven directly or indirectly by this fear of death. The fear of death meaning fearing, the fear of, of loss, of, of, of losing who we are and what we are. Um, this is referred to, by the way, in psychology as terror management theory. It's the theory that life 
is a series of activities in which we manage our terror of death. Now, you might say, wow, that's pretty dark and heavy. That's fine. I'm just telling you what modern psychology will say about our fear of death and how prevalent and how um, impactful it is, whether we're aware of it or not, on each of us. The truth is, this is nothing new. This fear of death and its effect on us, it's nothing new. It's, uh, it's been around since the beginning. It's been around from the dawn of, of humankind. I want to share with you a text that we're going to read together. Text number one in your books. If you have a book, if you received one, or if you found my email that I sent at about 7.30 tonight with a PDF of the class, feel free to open it up and you can follow along. If you don't have it, or if, you, if, if it's not at your fingertips, don't worry, I'm, I'm sharing my, uh, my, my uh, PDF with you and we can do it together. All right, we're going to begin with text number one and we're going to read this together inside. Um, what we usually do is we ask volunteers to read. I'd like to do that as well. Um, let's see, Doreen, are you up to reading text number one? All right, please unmute yourself if you can before you start reading. Please unmute yourself and take it away. Mortality. Mortality has haunted us from the beginning of history. 4,000 years ago, the Babylonian hero Gilgamesh reflected on the death of his friend Enkidu with the words, Thou hast become dark and cannot hear me. When I die, shall I not be like Enkidu? Sorrow enters my heart. I'm afraid of death. Gilgamesh speaks for all of us. As he feared death, so do we all. Each and every man, man, woman, and child, for some of us, the fear of death manifests only indirectly, either as generalized unrest or masquerade as another psychological symptom. Other individuals experience an explicit and conscious stream of anxiety about death. And for some of us, the fear of death erupts into terror that negates all happiness and fulfillment. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for reading that. That is, you can see the source, Irving Yalom. Um, okay, so here's the point. Mortality has haunted us from the beginning of history. It's not new. It's a universal fear of death and, frankly, a death of ending. These words that are quoted, thou hast become dark and cannot hear me. That... that, that to me, that epitomizes and that captures the experience here. A person passes away, and that's it. There's no... Uh, they, cease to, to, they cease to emit any sense of life and vitality and consciousness and awareness. That's what death is. And, and, and frankly, it's, it's, it, it, it can evoke a sadness and a fear. So there you have it. We human beings, we human beings are, are gifted. We're gifted with a self-consciousness and a self-awareness. We're aware of, of ourselves. And part of that gift of self-awareness comes the awareness, you know, of, of, of our own mortality. That one day everything will come crashing to an end. And most of us fear this deeply. And so we live in this state 
of contortion trying to compensate for this huge burdensome feeling of dread and futility. Because at the edge of it all is, at some point I won't be. And then what? So is there anything? Is there any meaning? Is it all just futile? I think we can agree though, that living with a sense of fear and anxiety about, uh, uh, about death is not the healthiest way to live. There's got to be a better way, and indeed there is. Let's explore the Jewish notion of death. We've explored some psychological notions of death, some classic human responses to the idea of mortality, the fear, etc. But let's explore the Jewish perspective on death. And we'll see that the way that Judaism frames death is completely different than the intuitive human framing. It's going to be extremely powerful to, to, to explore the Jewish perspective. So to understand the Jewish perspective on death, we really need to start with the opposite, which is the Jewish perspective on life. And for that, I'll ask the following question. What does it mean that you and I are alive? Who is the you or the I that is alive? So here's, our, here's the first major Jewish idea. And that is that life is not the body. It's not the limbs. It's not the organs. It's not the heart. It's not even the brain. That's not what life is. Simple proof is that in one moment, a person could be alive. And the next moment, they may have passed. The body remains intact. The same body the same limbs, the same organs, the same heart, the same brain is still there. It's no longer functioning. But the, the hardware, so to speak, is still there. So what is life? So what is life? Life is not the body. I'll tell you a story about this. There was a great Hasidic master. His name was Reb Zusha. Zusha of Anipoli. That was a city, Anipoli. Reb Zusha was a beloved Hasidic figure, a teacher, a, a mentor to, to thousands and thousands. One day, he was pacing. He was pacing, walking back and forth, and he was clearly distraught. And he was crying, Where's Zusha? Where's Zusha? Remember, his name was Zusha. So there he is, pacing and crying, Where's Zusha? Where's Zusha? Now his friends were scared. You know, when you see somebody pacing, asking where they themselves are, it's a scary thing. They thought maybe uh, something, something was wrong with him. So they ask him, are you okay? Is there something wrong? So he looks at them, turns to his colleagues, his friends, and he says, one day, one day in the not too distant future, you're going to find me on the ground. And I'm going to look exactly like this. I'm going to look exactly like this. But I won't be alive. I won't be moving. I won't be breathing. I won't be, I, I won't be here. And you'll cry when you see me, when you find me. You'll cry, where's Zusha? Where's Zusha? The same Zusha that you'll be looking for then, I'm looking for now. That's what he told them. 
The same Zusha, where are you? Where are you, Zusha? The same Zusha that you'll be looking for then. I'm asking myself, where is Zusha? Right now. Now we could have a whole class just on this one story. We could have a whole class on understanding a perspective on living, a perspective on life, a perspective on being fully present in what we're doing and not just doing things mechanically, but doing things essentially. And that would be valuable unto itself. And we're going to touch on some of that tonight. But there's so much more to unpack in this story. And what I want to specifically take from this story is the notion that life is not a body. Life is not the body. Life is something else beyond the body. Life is what is imbued within the body to give it life. Life is not the body. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes? You could have a full body there, a whole body. But where's Zusha? Where's Zusha? What do you mean where's Zusha? I see Zusha. But where's Zusha? That's the point. That's the real you. That's the real I. That's the real human being. It's not, it's not the body. And we know it's not the body. Even if we pretend for 120 years that it is, we know deep down life is not the body. I'll give you an example. Before I give you an example, let's quote some Kabbalah. I'm going to share my screen with you and let's do some text inside. Take a look at text number two. Eve, will you please read text number two? Uh, please unmute and read this. This is, I need to tell you where this is from. T tell everybody. This is from Rabbi Chaim Vital, who was the primary student, primary recording student, the one who wrote down the teachings of his teacher, Rabbi Isaac Luria, known as the Arizal, the great Kabbalist of the 1500s. Please take it away. Okay. The wise are aware that the human body is not the human being. When we speak of the human being, we are referring to the human's inner dimension. The body is merely a garment in which the soul is attired during its sojourn in this world. Thank you. I love how poetic this is. Even in the English, even in the English, which is a translation which could be forgiven if it wasn't as poetic as the original in the Hebrew. It's so poetic that if you're wise, you know that the body is not what constitutes the human being. When we talk about people, when we talk about you or I, it's not the body. It's an inner dimension. It's what's referred to in Judaism as the neshama or the nefesh. It's the soul. It's now, we're not defining yet what soul is and whose soul is and how soul is and, and, and what a soul looks like. We're not defining it. But what we're defining it is almost by its opposite. In other words, what we know for a fact is that life is not the body. Right? Life is not the body because the same body could be there but not be alive. So what is life? Something else. We call it nefesh or neshama or soul in English. That's life. So now I want to give you an example. The example that I want to give is a hand inside a glove. Imagine you take your hand and you put it inside, your, inside a glove. Not a mitten, 
<laughs> right? Because a glove that's a little bit more form-fitting, right? And you move your fingers inside the glove, and the glove is suddenly animated. Am I correct? I'm asking a question now. For those that, that, that have this information, please jump in and let me know. Am I correct in that there's a way to do, to manipulate, even in surgery, to do like robotic surgery by moving your fingers? No, with a glove. Is that science fiction? Is that real? Somebody jump in on that. It's real? Yeah? Okay. So, yes. okay, perfect. So, Imagine you put on a glove, whether it's a, it's a low-tech glove or a high-tech glove, it doesn't make a difference. You put on a glove and you move your fingers, suddenly the glove is moving. I'll ask you a simple question. Ask you a, a, a Shaila, a question. So the glove started moving. The glove's alive. So you have two types of gloves. They're the gloves that are dead and the gloves that are alive. Would anybody say that? Would anybody say that? I'm going to sell a live glove on eBay. This is a glove you've never seen. Most gloves don't move. I have a moving glove that I'm going to sell. Oh, it's going to fetch a tremendous price. No one would say that. Why? Because you know the glove is not moving. When can a glove move? A glove can't move. The Haraya, what's the proof? Take off the glove and put it down and it's not moving. So the glove doesn't move. So what moves? The hand inside the glove. I probably don't need to translate this back to the analog, but I'll do it anyway, just for the sake of symmetry. The body is the glove, and the soul is the hand, and the body is not alive without the soul. Bodies don't live. Souls live. Bodies never lived. Even while it looks like our bodies are alive, it's not the body that is alive. The body is enlivened by the soul, but the body doesn't contain, doesn't, it contains, the body doesn't possess life. Life is what we call a nefesh, or a neshama, in English, call it a soul, doesn't matter, semantics. If you're picturing soul, if you have an image of a soul, clear out the image, please. Please, no images. The soul is life. It's like electricity. As long as the soul is operating in the body, the body is alive. The body is animated, the body is conscious, it's aware, it's moving, it's breathing, everything is functioning. When the soul departs, it's like the hand going out of the glove. So what this tells us is our first big idea about life and consequently also about death. And that is that life is not the body, life is the soul. A meditation or a mantra, I am a soul in a body, not a body that possesses a soul. Are you with me on the distinction? Yes? I am a soul, I, I. Who's the I? Who's Zusha? Not the body of Zusha. Who's Zusha? Right? 
Who, who am I? By the way, I'm not Zusha. Zusha is Zusha. But, right, we're using that story. Right, so who am I? I am not a body. The I, my I, is operating inside a body. But I am not a body. My body is the container for the real me. Let's take this concept a little bit further. And I know you may have questions and, 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 and some insights on, on what I'm saying, but I'll ask you to either put into the chat or to hold it for another few minutes. I will open this up to take some, some verbal questions so we can all hear. Um, but I want to get to a few more points before we, we, we jump in to kind of a conversation. I want to deepen this idea a little bit further. And you know what? I'll actually ask it as a question. So feel free to jump in. Based on our definition of life, our Jewish definition of life, does the soul need the body or does the body need the soul? Does a soul need a body or does a body need a soul? Which one is it? Sorry? Yes. Yes, you're saying both. Okay, that's always a safe answer with my questions. Good. Um, but based on what we said most immediately, what would we say? Right. Who needs who? Based on what? The body needs the soul. The body needs the soul. The most straightforward approach is the body needs the soul. Why? Because a soul without the body is life. The body without the soul, it's not life. So the body needs the soul. Need the body? To, sorry? So does the soul really need the body? Doesn't it just limit? One second. One, so hold on. One, so one second. So what I'm positing right now is that the body needs the soul, right? The soul doesn't necessarily need the body. The body needs the soul. Give you an example. Um, give you an example um, of the sun and your living room. So imagine you're sitting in your living room. It's a sunny afternoon, and there's sun, sunlight, coming in through the window into your living room. And it's beautiful. It's illuminating. It's warming. It's, 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 it's geschmack. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. So your room, your home, is being lit and warmed by the sun. So here's the question. Does the sun need your room to shine, right? Does the sun say, oh, well, if, you're, if, you're not, if your house is not there, I'm out of here, right? Is that how the sun works? No, right? The sun is still the sun. The sun is still shining. Whether there's a house, whether there's a room, whether there's no house and no room, it doesn't make a difference. The sun is shining. But if we ask it the other way, we have, we'll have a different answer. Does the room need the sun in order to be illuminated by the sunlight? The answer is yes. I was going to ask, does the room need the sun in order to be lit? And the answer is no, because that's why we have lamps. But I was careful the way I asked it, right? Does the room need the sun in order to have sunlight? The answer is yes, right? Okay. So that's a similar construct to how we understand, at least up until right now, the, the connection, the relationship between body and soul. 
right? The soul doesn't need the body. The soul is life. The soul emanates light, like the sun that emanates light, L-I-G-H-T. The soul em- emanates life, L-I-F-E. That's what a soul emanates. The body, in order to be animated, to be alive, or to at least look like it's alive, the body needs a soul. Let's see something phenomenal. Let's see how this is captured, this concept is captured in the biblical account of creation. I'm going to pull up my screen again, and uh, I want to share with you I want to share with you um, two excerpts. I'm actually going to read them. But I want to give you um, a job while I'm reading them. Okay, so while I'm reading, this is going to be text 3A and 3B. While I read these short texts, I want you to compare and contrast one and the other. One of the texts will be about the creation of humankind, human beings. And one will be about the creation of animals. And I want you to look into the text as I'm reading it and tell me, think about, well, think about the distinction between these two texts. And after I finish reading both, I'll ask you, tell me the difference. And you'll have thought about that. So jump in with the answer, with your, with your answer. All right, let me share my screen and we're going to jump right into this. Okay, here we go. Text 3A. This is the human being. Genesis 2, verse number 7. God formed, pay attention, God formed the human of soil from the earth and breathed into his nostrils a neshama, soul of life. And the human being became a living being. That's the human creation story. Let's talk about animals, text 3b. God said, let the earth bring forth living beings of differing of differing species. Let the earth bring forth living beings of differing, differing species. Okay, so now you've read, I've read the text, you've read the text. I want to ask you, what is the difference between text 3a and text 3b in describing the creation of both? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Did I cut off the text? I'm sorry, I cut off the text. Um, a text 3B, one second, we're not done yet. God said, let the earth bring forth living beings of different species. Sorry, continue to the next page. Cattle, creeping thing, and beasts of the earth according to their species, and it was so. What is the distinction between these two narratives? Jump in. God breathed the human being. Say it again. God breathed his neshama or the neshama into the human being. Okay, good. So God breathed his soul into human being. Adira, go ahead. Sorry. Someone, someone skimped out on, on the animal creation situation. They just kind of skipped over it and then left us with whatever we're now. You're, you're, really you, you're saying it kind of glossed over a little bit too quickly. Yes, they didn't give enough details. They didn't give enough. Uh, give me some more details. Okay, I, I hear you. Okay, good. What else? What else? Distinctions between the two stories. One was through, through God, and the other, it's just the earth spitting him up. Okay, what else? So there's no comparison. Good, what else? Excellent. What else? Although, although the translation may be off, even the animals are living beings without a neshama. 
Okay, good. Good, good, good. What else? What else did you notice about how the process of life begins for both? One begins from the God, and the other is the earth. Okay, let, let, me, let, let, me, let, let me share the following. Let me share the following idea. If you notice, when it came to the creation of animals, it says that animals emerged from the earth as living beings. In other words, in their first moment of being, they were imbued with life. The human being is a little bit different in its description. The human being is described as first emanating from the earth as a body. And only then, later, as a second step, there being a soul infused into that body. Did you notice that? When it comes to the animals, the animals are created alive. The human being is created first as a clod of earth, a golem, right? Just a shell, a goof, a body, a piece of earth, a lump of clay. And it's only then, it's only after, I mean, not necessarily that long after, but it's only as a part two that Vayipach Ba'ap of Nishmaschayim that God imbued. A, a soul, a living soul inside of the first human being. Which reinforces, hold on a dear one second, which reinforces something exceptionally powerful and, and the theme that I mentioned before, but we're going to take it even a step further in a moment. What does it reinforce? It reinforces the notion that certainly when it comes to the human being, there is a difference between the body and the soul. The two are not the same. The two should not be confused as being the same. The body is not life. And the soul is not a body. There's two elements. When the human being is created, the first thing we have is a body. And then we have a soul, which tells us that the soul exists outside of the body. The soul could exist before the body. The soul can exist after the body. The fate of body and soul are not necessarily one and the same. Does that make sense what I'm saying, the conclusion that I'm drawing? Yes? Does that make sense? I'm seeing some nods. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through the logic one more time. The Torah tells us about the creation of human beings, that human beings are created from the earth, there's a body, and then a soul comes in that tells us something so important, that there's a body and there's a soul. There's a glove and there's a hand. And just because at a certain point, for a certain amount of time, the hand goes in the glove, the soul goes in the body, that doesn't mean that the soul is only body, and the body defines the soul, there are two different realities, two separate realities, each with its own destiny, each with its own reality, each with its own vibrancy, each with its own definition. When I say vibrancy, the body is not alive, but it has its own definition, it has its own shape and form and, and, and existence. But the soul is something else. I want to share with you one more text. One more text. I see some, I, I, it seems like some, there are some of you that want to jump in on something. I need to share a little bit more before we open this up. 
All right, this is going to be text 3C. Text 3C in your books. This is from the Chizkuni, one of the classic biblical commentaries, one of the classic Mepharshim, the uh, Jewish commentaries on the Torah. All right, take a look at this. God did, listen to what he says. I'm going to read this. God did what he had not done with any other creature. He blew into Adam with his Holy Spirit, a neshama, a soul that is immortal and does not perish when the body does. Hold on, let me explain what he's saying. Just like their beginnings don't coincide, their ends also don't coincide. Does that make sense what I just said? Just like they have different beginnings, first there's a body, and then the soul goes into the body, so too the end is not the same. The neshama is immortal. A soul does not die. It does not perish when the body does. Simple example, and I don't mean to oversimplify it, but sometimes simple is better because it's clear. When I pull my hand out of the glove and the glove sits there on the floor, unmoving, unable to move on its own anymore, it can no longer wiggle the fingers. It can no longer wave. It can't do anything. It's just a glove on the ground. When that glove no longer moves, does that mean I no longer have a hand? Does that mean the hand can no longer move? Of course not. The hand can still move fine. The same is true zooming out. When the hand can no longer move. Yeah, let's take it a step further. When the hand can no longer move after 120 years, does that mean the soul is no longer alive? Says the Chizkuni. And it's not his opinion. This is Judaism. It's just a, a nice succinct text that, that, that brings it home, says the Chizkuni, there's a soul, there's an Ashama that is immortal. It's eternal. The soul is a piece of God, and as God is immortal, God is immortal, so too is the soul. The body has its own origins, the soul has its origins. The body is enlivened by the soul for a certain amount of time, when the soul pulls out, when the soul and body separate, the body no longer moves, the body no longer is animated, the body no longer is aware, but life, life continues. The life, the true I, the true you continues. How long? It's immortal. This is the second big idea of tonight's class. The first big idea, if you're keeping track, right? The first big idea is that the real you is not the body, it's the soul. The second big idea is that the real you of the soul is eternal. So death, what we call death, what human beings, you and I call death, is not the end of life. 
It's rather the continuation of life, albeit in a different form. Instead of the, of the, of the hand animating the, animating the glove, the hand is no longer encumbered by the glove. The hand is now on its own. Does that mean that the hand does not exist anymore? The soul doesn't exist anymore? Of course not. It still exists. Example I've given before, quoting one of my mentors, Rabbi Simon Jacobson. He says, the refrigerator looks at the electricity and says, what happens when, when, when we're disconnected, when we're unplugged? What happens? The electricity says, I don't know about you, I'm still here, <laughs> right? You don't work. You're not going to refrigerate anymore. You're not going to keep things cold. If you unplug, let me explain, right? You unplug your refrigerator from the wall, yeah? Your, your, your meat is going to spoil. Your stuff, your ice cream is going to melt. That's what's going to happen. So the refrigerator is no longer going to work. What happens to electricity? It's still there. It didn't go anywhere. It's still there. It's no longer making the refrigerator hum and cool or whatever it does, right? Well, cool, right? But it's still there. So that's the second big idea. We're going to go, we're going to continue, one second, we're going to continue to go deeper and deeper into these ideas and present more and more big Jewish ideas about, frankly, about life, which then helps us understand death. And by the way, even what we've said so far, which is not, we're still a few steps away from where we're going. We're on a bit of, well, I was going to say journey. It's literally called journey of the soul here, right? This whole course. We're on a journey tonight. We're not there yet. We're maybe halfway there. Um, but even, even where we are right now, we can start seeing how a Jewish understanding of life helps us deal with a fear of death. Because if the fear of death is about not being anymore, not being, then Judaism's perspective on life helps us understand that that's not what death is. That death is not the end. Death is merely taking off the glove. Death is simply life continuing in a slightly different format. Well, not, I, I can't, I don't, I'm not going to um, frame it as slightly or not slightly. In a different format than before, but life, the true life, continuing on um, without, without the glove. All right, let's, let's pause for a few minutes, for a few moments. I want to check in and see if there are any questions. But before you jump in, before you unmute, um, I, I, want to, I want to say this, which is very important. This is the first half of lesson one. Don't worry about timing. We'll, we'll finish by 930. Um, but we've, we've just covered the first half of the first lesson. There are five and a half lessons to go. So if the question is about the journey and the process and reincarnation and afterlife and heaven and hell, great questions. We have five and a half lessons to cover this. There, all of these will be discussed. But I'm, I'm focusing more on questions that have arisen from what we've explored until now. All right, the floor is open. Please, please jump in. I'll, I'll, uh, I'm going to navigate this a little bit and make sure. I'm going to moderate this a little bit and see if this... Uh, if we can, if we can make this happen. All right, Richard, go ahead. Uh, what 
proof do we have? We'll get into it, the other lessons, maybe. What proof do we have? There is a soul. The body's dead. Mm -hmm. So it's dead. How do you know a soul arises or descends? Or how do we know there's a soul? Great question. So, I, great question. I, I think the question is predicated on, uh, on a, a preconception of, of a definition of soul. Okay? I think, it's, I think your question is premised on a, on a preconception of soul. And I think that, it's, that it would be helpful to just think about the story of Reb Zusha, Right? Think about the story of Reb Zusha, Right? He's saying, at some point, at, at, at some point, no one lives forever. At some point, I will be on the ground and you're going to say, where's Zusha? Everyone's going to be crying, crying tears. Where's Zusha? Where's Zusha? What kind of question is that? I'm right there. I'll be right there. Why are you saying where's Zusha? What's the answer? The body's there, but where's Zusha? That's what we refer to as the soul. So how do we know there's a soul? It's kind of like, how do we know that, that, that you are you? How do we know? We're talking about you. We're not talking about anything esoteric. It's, if, if we imagine a soul as a thing or whatever, then we could say, how do you know there's that thing? But what I'm referring to is life. How do we know there's life? Because I see you moving. I, see, I heard you ask a question. That's how I know you have a soul. Because I, I don't want to finish the sentence. That's how I know there's a soul. Because you asked the question and you're smiling and I see you. Right? And I love seeing you. That's how I know, that's how I know there's a soul. Now, how do you define a soul? All right. Again, we have five and a half lessons to, to, help, to help further define a soul. All right. Good. Um, Adi, go ahead. Adi. Adi. Rabbi, uh, I had a question. Um, I have a little bit of uh, ambivalence about the whole concept from a medical perspective. You know, I, I think if you see somebody die, that at the moment of death, you could, um, you know, do biopsy of their brain or anything. It would be completely vital, just as if the moment of or death, they would have been as vital, you know, down to the cellular level, completely, you know, alive, living as an organism, um, which would kind of support this, what you've, uh, you know, the concept that you brought up. But then at the same time, I think about it when you resuscitate a person, you know, the length of time it takes you to resuscitate a person, there's a, a diminishing return in terms of being able to um, revitalize that person. In other words, it seems like there is a, a physical intervention that one being puts into another being that uh, is, has a, a time constant to it. Can't hear him, Rabbi. One second, one second. I'm going to repeat the question. I'm going to repeat the question. Go ahead, go ahead. That, that you know, the, the amount of time that you spend resuscitating that person would uh, determine what is the likelihood of, you know, in essence, reanimating that person with a soul right which implies that that it is a physical thing life is a physical thing and not a, a spiritual thing so the two that's why I, ha I say there's an ambivalence there because uh, at some point it seems completely physical and determined by uh, by um, the intervention and the other seems like it is okay good excellent 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 let me summarize because some people weren't able to hear you I'm gonna mute you and then um yeah, perfect. So that, let me, let me um, see if I can do justice to the question, to repeat it, and then, and then try to address it. The question is, from a medical perspective, we talk about somebody who um, 
needs to be resuscitated and then human intervention can resuscitate. So it seems like there's, there's a bit of a physical intervention that can be done. So is this really a spiritual reality? Is it a physical thing? What, what is it? Um, I saw in the chat box, it was also asked um, about uh, life support and brain death and, 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 and all of the, the, which I think is somewhat related. Here's what I'll say. Um, one, one major idea on this. And that is, um, I'm just going to mute everybody just so we have nice quiet back so everyone can hear in the meantime until uh, we get to the next question. All right, so, so here's what I'll say about that. There is an interplay while we're here between body and soul, between glove and hand. And it's not, sometimes there's a bit of a gray area where the soul is, is somewhat connected but maybe not 100%. Give you an example. The Talmud says that sleep is 160th of death. It's a taste of death. What does that mean? It means when we sleep, we're not as conscious. We're not as fully in control of self. When somebody is, God forbid, unconscious, it means they're not fully conscious. They're not fully aware on some level. And that means that on some level, it's a taste. It's not death, but it's a taste. Which means that the soul is somewhat, the connection is somewhat um, compromised, if you will, between, between soul and body. And that could happen either the soul is, is pulling away, so to speak, or the body is somehow, the body is not able to be fully receptive to that energy of the soul. I want to give you another example. Imagine you're wiring your home entertainment system. Remember when people had home entertainment systems? Do you remember that? Back in the day? Yes? Are you with me? Like stereo systems? Ooh, stereo systems. You had a receiver and an amp and a, yeah, you had like different components. Components. What do the kids know today about components? You have MP3s and TikTok and that's all you need. Anyway, get off my lawn. But anyway, getting back to this. So what am I trying to say? So, back in the day, you had to run wires between your stereo system, the components, and your speakers. So, what happens if your wire, yeah, your copper wire, whatever, the, the wire is not so, is compromised. Maybe it's bent a little bit or whatever. You know what happens? You know what happens. I don't, I don't need to tell you what happens. What does the sound sound like? Crackly. It's interrupted. It's disrupted. Doesn't sound, doesn't sound great, right? Kind of like Zoom sometimes, right? There's a bit of interference, we call it. Can there be interference between the interface of body and soul as well? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. How and exactly the details and the, it, it's, we can't get into that now. There's, there's, we don't have enough time. But I'm hoping, I'm giving a little bit of a framework to understand, to, to, to conceptualize that, that life is soul in a body. A body without a soul is not alive. I, how can you resuscitate? What is unconsciousness? What is brain death? These are all states in which the soul and body have not been disconnected fully. 
But there's a bit of interference, so to speak, between the two. And if there's interference, you can clear it sometimes. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can. Right? Sometimes, you know, when a cable is making that crackling sound, if you bend it at just the right angle, it heals. Yeah? Human intervention bringing the signal back in. How could it be? That's the way it is. Because sometimes that's how it works. Sometimes the connection is too compromised that it's going to remain crackling. Sometimes, you ever have a charger for a laptop that stops charging? Yeah, or a phone? Because you were using it and you twisted it, and at the end it got bent? Everyone's had this. There's no way that everyone hasn't had this happen to them. Yeah, and then the only way it charges is when you hold it at the angle and you use a, a, a twist tie to keep it in place. All right, we've all been there. We've all been there. So that's what we call human intervention. Yeah. How could it be if the soul is in the body, it's either is or... It's not, it's not an either or. It's not 100% or zero. Sometimes there's a, there's a bit of a gray area. Hope that makes sense. All right, I know there are more questions. Um, all right, so uh, Meira or Dasi, jump in. But animals were born living. What is life to them? Do they have like a spirit? That's a great question. That's a great question. So Kabbalah says that every living being, excellent question. Is there a doggy heaven or a cat heaven? I'm not going to get into that debate between cats and dogs, right? Is there, is there a heaven for animals? Um, is there an afterlife? Is there something beyond? These are great questions. Um, so in short, Kabbalah teaches that everything, every living being has a soul. And therefore, every living being does have an element that, that, um, that, 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 that outlives the, uh, the temporal um, bodily existence. With human beings, it's specified in a unique way to indicate a very unique and powerful and eternal soul. Now, what, how exactly that works for animals, it, it, it's... Again, the general notion is that every living creature has a soul, and therefore there is some element of this for all life. With human beings, it's, it's specified and clarified. Um, I don't have a, a solid source in Kabbalah that, that analyzes the Kabbalah of canines, perhaps, if you will, just to get the alliteration going. Um, that's not to say that it's not, or that, 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 that these things aren't discussed. I just don't have a source that I could pull out to... Uh, to coherently discuss it, but 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 rest but rest assured that Kabbalah or whatever, just the, the reality is that Kabbalah does speak of souls for all beings. Okay, uh, let's do one more question. Um, have I? Yes. Okay, so that original breath. Do yeah. We all have a piece of that original one, or do we all get our own? Oh, excellent and question. The, excellent question. It's the, the soul enter at conception. It's the same, it's the same um, concept for all of us. And the concept is that um, the concept is that all of us have two components, and although they coexist for a while, for an amount of time, they are not um, they, 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 they do not constitute 
one does not constitute the limitation for the other. So our bodies are our bodies and our souls are, and our soul is a soul. We're going to have a source soon from the Medrash that speaks about this. Um, as far as when does life begin, that's a bit of a, there's a bit of a moving target there. The soul is associated at conception, but it doesn't fully integrate until birth. So when does, it, when does the soul enter the body? It depends how you define enter. <laughs> I hate to be uh, so um, whatever, you know, like that, but it, it depends on what enter means, right? When is it first associated? When is it related? When does it hover? The Talmud says that uh, 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 during um, uh, the pregnancy, the soul hovers over the body. But when is it, when is it integrated? At birth and at the bris and at the baby naming and, and there's at bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. It's an ongoing process of integration. Slowly, slowly, slowly. It's kind of like... Every um, soul was from a breath? Every soul, every, here's the deal. Every soul is eternal. Every human soul is from God, is, is eternal. And the description of what happens with, the, with, with Adam is, is in, in similar fashion what happens with each of us. That is that there's a body and there's a soul and the soul infuses the body with life. Um, uh, Steve, your dad has a question. Raise your hand next. Raise your hand. Bye. Yeah. I am seriously ill, but at this stage of my life, I have no fear. I lost my father uh, at a very young age, only 51, and I feel at some point we will be reunited and uh the prospect of facing death uh at this point in my life is such where i'm not fearful now maybe uh, uh, some point on i will be but now i am not and uh my question is really is this right is it wrong uh i feel strong in my faith i am in in, in Seriously, uh, and, and knowing you and listening to you, you bring my faith to a position where it's stronger than ever, and I am grateful for you to you for that. Thank you for sharing that, Murray. I want you to know that I love you, and that, and I know Steve. Steve is um, is such a good friend, and and it's um, your your. Your strength and your faith is, is really touching for all of us. So thank you for sharing that. And I wasn't suggesting in the beginning of this class that we have to fear. I was suggesting that if we find ourselves in a place of fear, so Jewish, Jewish teachings might be able to help. But don't, don't fear and be strong. And again, only sending love and, uh, and good wishes to you and, uh, and to everybody. Okay, let's... Um, do, yeah, one more question. Yeah, Sylvia or Howard. When the soul doesn't, what happens if the soul doesn't want to leave the body? Oh, good question. Good question. Hold the question. We're going to get into that in our second half. Excellent question. So the question was, what if the soul doesn't want to go? That's, that's, a, that's a great question. I'll tell you even more so, it's not a question of if. It's really a question of when, right? What happens when the soul doesn't want to go? Because it's, it's, it's really all souls at the core. They, on a soul level, 
there, there, there is an attachment here, and we'll talk about that in the second half of our lesson as we go a little bit deeper into this. And again, we have about 15 minutes left, which is perfect to cover well, the two more idea, two, two, two additional big ideas that I want to cover. So at this point, I'm going to mute just to have a nice clean background at 9.30 when we close the class. So when we formally conclude the class, We'll open it up again for conversation, discussion for those that have questions and want to follow up with comments. I'll be here for a few minutes after, for, for as long as it takes after that, but let's, do, let, let's cover some more ground. So I want to share with you the next text. And let's take a closer look at this soul that we've described as independent of the body and immortal. I'm going to share my screen with you, and this is going to be text number, oops, I got the wrong uh, thing on. This is going to be text number four, the Medrash. And this is what I mentioned to, uh, I forgot to who already, but in the Q&A just now, this is what I referenced. 40 days, I'm going to read the text now. 40 days before the conception of a child, God summons, this is, uh, hold on, 40 days before conception, not before birth, right? They know everything up there, right? Forty days before the conception of a child, God summons the angel in charge of souls and tells them, bring before me a certain soul that is now in Gan Eden in paradise. Its name, the name of the soul is such and such, and its appearance is such and such. This is possible, says the Medrash, because all the souls that are born in this world were created on the day the world was created and exist until the end of time. The angel goes and brings the soul before God. The soul bows and prostrates itself before the supreme king of kings. God instructs the soul, please enter the seminal drop that is currently in the hands of the angel in charge of pregnancy. Listen to this last paragraph. The soul protests, master of the universe, I am quite satisfied with the world I inhabited since the day you created me. I am holy and pure, hewn from your throne of glory. Why do you wish to cause me to enter this putrid drop. Why do you wish for me, this pure, spiritual, divine, godly, eternal soul, to enter into a physical body? Why? Take a look at text number 10. It says, this world is like a corridor before the world to come. Prepare yourself in the corridor so that you may enter the palace. A single moment of bliss in the world to come is greater than all of this world. And what these texts share with us is once again this notion that the soul predates the body. The soul has its own reality and existence outside the body. The soul continues to exist after the body is no longer alive. The soul is a world, is a reality, is a life unto itself. But these texts also evoke one new idea. And that is that the hand going into the glove, this is the metaphor, right? The soul going into the body is not an experience that the soul immediately desires. It's not an experience that the soul necessarily immediately appreciates. It's, a, it's an experience that the soul is kicking and screaming about. The soul does not want to go in. And this, the, the other world, right, the world beyond this, 
with the soul unencumbered by the body is, as we read in the text, is an upgrade. So this is the third big idea. Not only is the real me the soul, not only is the soul eternal, but in reality, in reality, the truest and most sublime experience of life is not necessarily the experience that the soul has here in the body. And yet, we need to contrast this with a conflicting statement from our tradition. What I'm trying to set up now is a contradiction and a, a seeming paradox. Because take a look at the following texts as I share my screen with you once again. Take a look at, hold on, this is going to be... One second. You know what? I don't have to share my, my screen for this. Judaism teaches that life is the most supreme value. In the context of Torah and mitzvot, our tradition teaches us that when a person is faced with a choice, do a mitzvah which could, could take one's life or don't do the mitzvah and preserve life, we always preserve life. We always sacrifice, if you will, the spiritual experience for the, for the preservation of physical life, which begs the question. Which begs the question. If the sublime state of the soul unencumbered by the body is better, right? If that's the ideal, if spiritual experiences are the ideal, hand alone is ideal and not hand in glove. So why are we fighting to preserve life? Judaism is a tradition of life, Right? What necklaces do we wear if not the chai necklace? Life, right? What do we toast each other if not l'chaim to life? Judaism as a religion, as a way of life, is obsessed with life. Other faiths may be, other faiths may be obsessed with death. Our American culture might be obsessed with death. By the way, if you don't believe me, just walk around the streets in October and you tell me how many death symbols you see on the streets, right? Judaism does not have death symbols. Judaism is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a movement, is a way of life, is a way of life that celebrates life. It even reflects, yes, Halloween. It even reflects in how we honor those who have passed away. No makeup, no beautifying the body. It's not about glorifying death or beautifying death. We honor life in Judaism. So how do we justify, how do we reconcile these conflicting notions that the soul is pure and eternal and the soul doesn't want to go into the body? How do we reconcile that with the notion that life is so precious? There's a beautiful answer, beautiful perspective on this that I want to share with you. And that is, although the soul's experience without a body is pure, and it's more spiritual and it's more sublime, but the soul in the body, the hand in the glove, in the metaphor, is, fulfills an extremely important purpose. So although they, that may not be the immediate desire of the soul, that may not be as pleasurable for the soul, 
to be inside a body. Nonetheless, that is where the mission of the soul and the primary mission of the soul takes place. Take a look at the screen as I share with you once again the text. I'm going to jump all the way to text number 12. See if I can find it quickly. Text number 12 from the Talmud. The Talmud shares the following story. When Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, he was the, uh, the compiler of the Mishnah. When Rabbi Judah the Prince fell ill and lay on his deathbed, Rabbi Chia, a colleague, entered and found him weep, uh, maybe a student, entered and found him weeping. My master, exclaimed Rabbi Chia, why do you weep? Was it not taught if one dies smiling, it is a good sign for him? While weeping, it is a bad sign for him. Rabbi Judah replied, I weep because of my inability to study the Torah and observe the commandments after death. So what we see here is that although the, the, from a Jewish perspective, there's no fear in mortality in and of itself as an end of life. But the sadness is, right, the weeping is, the inability to study Torah and do mitzvot. In other words, the end, if you will, of the mission on earth. So it's not about the end of life as much as it is about the culmination of mission. And as the mission is dear to us, it's hard to let go of that mission. This is why we find a conflicting message amongst our sages. Take a look. I'm, I'm going to go back now to text number 10. And I want to share with you something that could otherwise be seen as a major paradox, as a contradiction. But it makes sense given what I've, what I've shared with you tonight. Look at this Mishnah from Pirkei Avot, from Ethics of the Fathers. It says, against text 10, against your will you are formed. And against your will you are born. Against your will you live. And against your will you die. And that seems like a contradiction. If it's against your will to live, then why is it against your will to die? If you don't want to live, then you want to die. If you don't want to die, you want to live. Which one is it? It's a contradiction. But now we understand. Unless you think about the soul and the body's attitudes, the soul doesn't want to go into the world, but the mind, which doesn't understand the soul, possibly is thinking, well, I don't know what happens when I die, so I don't want to die. So it's like the animal and Good. the godly soul are fighting. I'm with you. I'm with you. That's one way to look at it. But I'm saying even from a soul perspective, good. You have, you have, that's, a good that's a good angle. But I'm saying even from a soul perspective, you have this conflict. The soul recognizes that its core and its connection exists outside of the body. Irrespective of the body, it doesn't need the body. The body only serves to make things a little bit more complicated. So on the one hand, the soul is, 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 is completely at home without the body. So against your will you are born, against your will you live, the soul would rather on some level be back home, connected. But against your will you die, even from the soul's perspective. The soul, the godly soul, at some point learns to appreciate its mission on earth. And this comes back to the question I asked before, right? So the body needs the soul to live. Does the soul need the body? Well, no, but yes. The soul doesn't need the body to live. 
that the soul needs the body to do its mission here on earth, to fulfill its mission, right? It's similar to, if you think of this example, it's similar to an astronaut in outer space. This is an example that I've given before in other classes. An astronaut that has a mission in outer space cannot fulfill the mission without a spacesuit, right? So if you're in an environment that, that requires it, you need a glove. You need to put on a glove. Um, on a simple level, if you got something cooking in the oven and you needed to pull it out, right? Your Thanksgiving turkey, you probably should put on some gloves, some oven gloves to, uh, to safely navigate that experience. The same thing is true with the soul. Yes, the soul exists outside the body. The soul is alive without the body. The soul is eternal without the body. But the soul can't do a mitzvah without the body. And that's why against our will we live, but also against our will on some level we die. Such a powerful idea. And this also, this also relates to how we started the class, relates to our fear of death. Our fear of death, it's not a fear from a Jewish perspective. There's no fear in life coming to an end. What life coming to an end? The body is no longer moving, but life doesn't come to an end. Life continues and continues on eternally. There's no end to life. Just like the electricity doesn't go anywhere when the refrigerator is unplugged from it. Life goes on. Life continues, albeit in a different state. But at the same time, we're also not cavalier about death. We're also not flippant about death. Death marks the end of an opportunity for the soul to fulfill its mission on earth, utilizing the tools of the body. So there is something. There is something that is missing. I want to I share one more point as we conclude today's class. And that is a statement of our sages that says, Tzadikim, after their death, they are still considered to be alive. It says righteous people after their death are still considered to be alive. And the question is, the question is, what does that mean? Why only tzaddikim? Why only righteous people? Uh, oh, oh, only in their death they're called alive. We just said that everybody has a soul and everybody, the soul is eternal. So then what does it mean only the righteous are alive after death? Based on everything we set up until now, it would seem that only the soul lives on. And only... Only the soul lives on, but the body and all bodily related activities, they end. We don't eat after we pass away. We don't drink after we pass away, right? After 120, right? Those activities, we don't go to the ball game anymore. Those activities end with the body. The body ceases to be animated and the bodily activities likewise cease to happen. Those are two things, those, that's what ends, right, what, with what we call death. The body and bodily activities. And so here's what I would like to suggest. Here's what Judaism suggests that I would like to present. The more spiritual and eternal activities that we are involved with right now, the more our lives are eternal right now. Ask yourself the question, are the activities that I'm doing today, 
activities that will end or do they represent ideals that are eternal? My eating and drinking, my breakfast or my lunch or my dinner, all of these constitute necessary but temporal activities. But the spiritual things that I do, the soulful experiences, the soulful activities of my life, the things that touch on something higher, something more divine, something more spiritual, those are activities that are indeed immortal. And so my friends, this is likewise an antidote to the fear of death. It's how we live our lives. Are we living lives that are filled with life or lives that are filled with activities that aren't so alive, essentially? Are we living with things, with activities? Are we experiencing life in a way that's truly eternally alive? Or are we involved in activities that have a shelf life, that have an expiration date? Can't get away with not eating. Can't get away with not sleeping. Can't get away with physical activities. But we can certainly infuse them and imbue them with meaning and with vitality, with vibrancy, with, with a spiritual element that, uh, that maintains its eternality. And so, my friends, this is the Jewish approach to fear of death. We don't have to fear death. But if we become apprehensive about death, let us remember the body is not the true definition of life. That's what the soul is. The soul is life. The soul's life is eternal. And although the soul has an important mission on earth, as we discussed, that doesn't constitute the complete totality of the soul by any means, the soul continues to live. And as we live, we have the opportunity to focus on activities that truly are alive and truly express eternal life. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for our opening session of Journey of the Soul. I hope that it was meaningful to you. I hope that it resonated with you. And I encourage you, if you have the book or the PDF, which I email to everybody, I encourage you to look through the text, both the ones that we covered as well as the ones that we didn't, and you'll continue to be enriched with the themes. We covered pretty much all the themes of the class, um, some inside, some outside. You can now reference the, the, the text and continue your study. Next week, before we get to questions or comments, next week, we are going to look at what happens at the moment of death. What does death, that moment of death, mean for the soul? And what happens with the soul from that moment forward? What happens to the soul? How does it transition away from the body? And what does it mean for us who are, for those that, are, that remain living here, remain souls in bodies here on earth? What is that journey of the soul that has separated from the body mean for those whose souls are still in their body, loved ones, etc.? This is going to be the, the content and the topic of lesson number two. And I can't wait to see you next week. Same Bat time, same bat channel, next Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Few quick announcements. Before we get, before we get to questions and comments, I'm still, I'm still going for another, give me 30 seconds. Um, if you haven't yet, if you tried out tonight's class, I, I, I hope you enjoyed it, and I encourage you to register for the class so I can send you a textbook 
and so that you'll join us for the, for the subsequent sessions. That's number one. Number two, if you are a medical or mental health professional, please, please look at the link that I sent and register for the credits. If you did not get the link, if you did not get the email, check your spam. Maybe it went to spam. If not, if it's not in your inbox and not in spam, email me and I will email you the link again. Um, it's important that you fill it out. It will only be valid today, the day bef what, what, before the class and the day after the class. So it has to be done either tonight or tomorrow um, to register to get in for those credits. It's up to nine credits for medical and mental health professionals. All right, that's all my announcements. Again, thank you for coming tonight. For those that need to leave, feel free at any point in time. For those that wish to stay in schmooze, I'm here. Morris, go ahead. All right, my question is this. Does the soul dictate the actions of the body? The answer is no. The soul does not dictate the actions of the body. This is where free choice comes in. The godly soul certainly has a desire to live a life that is in perfect harmony and concert with its source. The reality is that we don't always, do, we don't always behave exactly in that manner. Why? Because there are other forces at play, which we did not speak about tonight, but we've covered in other classes. Um, suffice to say that there are other forces that are inside the human being, spiritual forces, that serve to provide a foil, if you will, right? Not uh, Reynolds, but to provide a foil to the godly soul's designs. And that's where free choice comes in with the rational mind to choose which path we're going to follow. True life or the opposite? Essentially, we have this in one of the texts that we didn't read inside. This is what the Torah means in Deuteronomy when God says, I have placed before you, um, uh, I have placed before you life and death, choose life. And, and, and the question is, what does it mean, choose life? Who, who, would, cho who would choose death? What, what, what kind of choice is that? And the answer is, it's not about you know, actual life and death. It's about what we're going to be involved in, in any given moment. Are we going to be involved in things that are eternal, that are in harmony with our, our true self, our godly soul, or are we going to succumb to the distractions of all the other things that, that tempt us and, 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 and pull us away from, from our center and, 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 uh, and really North Star? So that's really what it comes down to. But excellent question. The answer is no. It's not the only game in town, and that's where choice comes in. By the way, if, if you and I only had a godly soul and a body and it was like a hand in a glove and our soul was able to move it around and that was it, there were no interruptions, uh, life would look very different. <laughs> but it also would be a little bit less meaningful to do good. Doing good would mean less because it would be so intuitive. So if somebody did something good, it would be, yeah, why not? Like, what else are they going to do? The fact that we have other forces, which again, we did not cover tonight, the fact that there are other forces at play here makes our positive actions and good choices meaningful, which is a key component in life. Uh, Mindy, go ahead. Um, have you heard of or seen the new animated Disney movie that's out now called Soul? No, I heard about. I've read about it. Available on Disney Plus. Have you heard about it? I've heard about it. I don't it. know how many of the rest of you have seen it, but we Lily, have you seen it? it? <laughs> yes. It's not really a 
kids movie. Oh. I mean, I, that wasn't a judgment. That, that wasn't a judgy question. It was just, I, it was an innocent question. <laughs> Sorry. No, she's seen it. We all, we all saw it. Um, but it had very adult themes. And oh, uh, yeah, she, she's just saying she didn't really like it. Oh, okay. But it's interesting how um, the concept of the, these souls before they get placed in a, in a baby, it's sort of like that stage of the soul before it it finds a home a body and so it's like getting personality traits and it's very it's a very interesting take and i'd be very curious to see what you think about it very interesting i don't know that we're going to cover this in the course but the the soul does take on a unique personality the soul is not pure electricity and the only differentiating factor is the body this is something Kabbalah speaks of at length, which, again, I don't know that we're going to get into the, this, this specific detail of the soul in this course, but you, you ask the question and you, or you, 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 you raise this idea. I think it is important at least to mention that there is this notion of um, the soul having its own personality outside the body as different from another soul, right? So souls are distinct from one another, there is the essence of the soul that is that is uh, uniform, if you will, or that it's uh, you know that's um, that's all one that's a, that, that touches on oneness. But there is also unique a unique um, flavor to each soul. Each soul, as it tumbles through, again, I'm I'm, I'm speaking capitalistic terms here. Say their shalut, the order of the the chain of the universe. It it does accrue, it does acquire a unique a unique pattern of personality that is unique to that soul, that unique soul print that no other soul possesses. So, you know, is the Disney movie soul channeling Kabbalistic thought? I would have to see it to let you know. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't surprise me if the writers were Jewish, but that's a Hollywood thing. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just want to further your analogy. It's like a raindrop. A raindrop... Uh, coming coming into freezing temperatures, and each it becomes a snowflake, and then Beautiful. the snowflake become has its own shape. And I love that. Out. I love that. So, in the body has it. Okay, that's that's fantastic. Glad to help you out. For those that don't know, that's my mother. So she's always got my back whenever I'm I, whenever we need a, an analogy. Boom. Right, so that's 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 perfect, right? This the every raindrop, H two O, it all comes from the same source, right? As it comes down, it acquires a personality, right? In Atlanta, see, snow analogies are not like the front and center in, in Atlanta. In Pittsburgh, it's a little bit of a different thing. In Pittsburgh, a snow analogy is like is a Tuesday. In Atlanta, it's a shutdown of a city, a snow analogy. You have to be careful. You mentioned snow, it's like uh, fire in a crowded theater, which I don't want to say too loud, right? Snow is like snowpocalypse, like we're done. We're done. We're out for a week next, right? So we got to be careful with, uh, with messages of, with, with, with mentions of, uh, of snow. But yeah, it's a great example. <laughs> right. Sorry? Jewish souls, are they different than... All souls are coming from the same source. The only difference would be in the, in, the, uh, um, in the obligation of the soul, which deals with the personality, as I mentioned before, right? So you have souls with different missions. By the way, even amongst Jewish souls, every soul has a different particular mission. 
I'll give you a simple example. A very, very simple example. Um, a Kohen, right? A, co- a, 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 a Jew who's a Kohen, right? Has, a, has different mitzvah obligate, at least in times of the temple, whatever, even today, could have a different mitzvah obligations than a non-Kohen. And a Levi has different than a Kohen. And he's... So what that means is that every person, whether you slice, doesn't matter how you slice it, you know, Kohen, Levi, Yisrael, or uh, male, female, there's so many different ways to slice it. Um, adult, child, right? Whatever. Everyone has a different, has a different um, purpose. Every soul, every human soul comes from God and every soul has a mission. But again, there are certain particulars that happen um, as things, as, as the soul gains its unique personality. Um, as it gets called into the game, so to speak, from the bullpen. Uh, hey soul, we need you. Come on in. Do you believe that we choose the families that we're with? Uh, excellent question. According to the Medrash, God chooses that. According to the Medrash that we, that we read inside? My granddaughter came to this world very challenged. Very challenged. And she's at peace now. But we totally know that God, that soul needed to come into that particular challenged body. And God gave her to us which was a most incredible blessing. Yeah. What she did for a family, if it happened to every family, there'd be world peace. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And, and, and thank you for, for expressing it that way. Look, we believe that there's no accident. There are no accidents about who is born, where and when and how and, and what, and you know, into what family, into what context, into what situation. Everything is by design. The measures told us that God handpicks the soul, tells the angel in charge, I want this soul, it looks like that, to go into that child, into that context, into that body, into that situation, to, and frankly, into that challenge. Because every... every so... Does the soul choose the family? I think it's it's I think I think it's even more profound than that. It's that God is making the shidduch. God is making that match, and that's um, I think that's uh, that that's that's really beautiful and meaningful. Again, thank you, thank you both for for uh, for sharing on, on that on that idea. Um, any more questions? Yeah, of course. Any more questions or comments? Yeah, Richard. Uh, once I was like, let, let's go to Adina Malka. Go ahead. I see. Yeah. Um, does God choose um, your challenge, your mission? Does God choose your challenge for you? Yeah. 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 We're, we're each born into a set of challenges and they keep on evolving as we live life. Um, some of them seem to be created through our own choices, but in reality, it's all, it's all pretty much preordained which, which challenges we'll face. How we respond to the challenge, that's our choice, right? That's our choice, how we respond. But the fact that we have this challenge, um, at least Jewish belief is that uh, that, that is something that is, that is coming from God, tailor-made for our abilities. One meditation that Judaism speaks of is a meditation of, I know that if this is my challenge, then my soul has the power to overcome the challenge. And so I believe that I, and when I say overcome, I don't mean to just wish something away necessarily, but I mean that I can 
you know, fight through, work through, struggle against whatever it is with this challenge. And, um, and I know that I can, I can create something positive and beautiful in this experience. Whether I'll conquer it or not, sometimes a person can't conquer and heal a challenge. Sometimes the, the challenge is, 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 is a reality that can't be changed. But how we respond, you know, how we respond to that with grace, dignity, love, acceptance, um, light, peace, etc., that is certainly within our control. And again, a meditation to help us with that is that if God is giving me this challenge, then I have the capacity to face it the way I need to face it. Um, okay. Questions? Yeah, go ahead, Richard. Um, does, does the soul always remain pure or could it be a soiled by actions of the body? Is it always a pure soul? Excellent. Excellent question. Excellent question. It's a beautiful question. It's actually going to come up in a later lesson, so I don't want to give too much away. The short answer is it depends which layer of the soul. Um, at the core of a soul, it can never be sullied. It can never be um, compromised. But the more external layers of a soul can take on um, some, some schmutz. Some of the, uh, some of the um, think, of a, think of a garment that's sprayed with, um, I don't know, Scotchgard or whatever it is, right? So it, uh, again, I don't want to give too much of a crude example, but, you know, a garment that's, or, or a couch or whatever that's with Scotchgard. So it, it's not that it can't get dirty. It can get dirty, but it could be wiped away. And, and, and bring out, yes, the Scotch Guard do that? Am I wrong here? Am I right? Does it actually work? Yeah. Does it actually? Well, I don't know if it works 100%, but again, I'm just trying to think of an analogy on the fly that might help with this. So the external layers could get sullied, sullied but there's a way to clean that and the core never gets compromised. That's very important. That's very, yeah, <laughs> smart. Yeah, the, the slingshot takes care of that, which... Again, we'll have to save for another class. But we are going to get into that in the, in the subsequent lessons. Sorry, thank you. All right. Um, quite pleasure, of course. Uh, yes. Okay. I have two questions, Rabbi. Yes. Uh, so I think it was text four that said basically the soul enters the sperm 40 days before conception. Um, so I have two questions about that. One, does this mean the egg doesn't provide any soul? And if so, then how is it that like Judaism through the mother, if the mother isn't providing soul? Excellent question. And then question two, why is there a prohibition of spilling seed if there's like no soul or no life unless like conception is actually going to happen? Excellent. Both, both excellent questions. Let me go back. It, in. Can I question? Sorry? She kind of, she almost answered her own question. Like, if the soul is in the sperm, then that means it's in some seed, which means that if he's spilling seed, that means he might be wasting that soul. Sounds like the answer to me. But right. you're the rabbi. I, listen, you know, that's what they tell me. But it's, it's, it is a good question, and I, and I hear the question. What I want to do is I'm just looking back in my book to reference the text. So it says like this says um, 40 days before conception, right, the, um, the, the, the soul is called up. The angel is with uh, the soul bows. 
Please enter the seminal drop that's currently in the hand of the angel of charge of pregnancy. Okay, so on some level, on some level, um, it seems like the call up is happening 40 days before conception, but the soul doesn't actually become associated until that moment of conception. Now, the fact that it says, please enter the seminal drop as opposed to the egg is, I don't know. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's um, specific one as opposed to the other, or if it means in general, the, um, the, the embryo, that it's supposed to go into that experience. I'm reading it as kind of like a, a bit of a generalized statement. Um, certainly, if the angel, whoever the angel is in charge of pregnancy, knows not only where the sperm is, but also where the egg is, and that angel can, uh, can, can make sure it's all going to the right place. But it's, it's a good question on the language of it. And I would say as far, so, so I don't know that I can share much more than what I said, which is, the way I'm understanding it is, although it says into the seminal drop, it means in general the, um, the procreative experience, the soul is, is involved in that. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that that means that life necessarily begins at conception, right, necessarily. Um, but the soul is associated from the moment of conception. As far as the question, when does life begin? Within Jewish law and Jewish thought, again, I mentioned that before, it's a complicated question. It, it's associated at conception, but there's an evolution as far as, you know, when it really enters and, and, and animates and influences the person, and that's an ongoing process. Honestly, as we discussed tonight, we're still in that process, right? How alive are we? That's what I ended the class with. How alive are we, which means how much does our soul influence our body? How many soulful activities are we doing as opposed to just bodily activities, glove activities, right? How many hand activities as opposed to glove activities? So when does life begin? It's, it's a question we answer every day, right? Are we alive? Are we really living? Um, as far as your second question, the idea of, 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 of the potential of life is even if there is no conception, which I'm, I'm understanding the angel of pregnancy is involved with, with that conception moment and, and introducing the soul. The issue is not that there's a soul that's wasted. The issue is that there's a potential that's potentially wasted, which again is a, is a, is a conversation unto itself, and which touches on the idea of, of, of in general, um, potential and, 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 and how we see potential and how we try to imbue um, our potential with some concrete um, actualizations. But it's a good, both questions were very good. Mom. Yes, two things. One is, uh, just to add to what you said, there's an expression, life begins at 40. Right. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not just a flippant. Well, thank, thank God I'm alive, just barely. Based on, we, we, we learn, we, we, we get more experience, we get more appreciation, we, 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 put, we put things in perspective of what we value. And then we start all over again, in right. a way. Good. So, and then the other thing I wanted to say was David HaMelech stated in Tehillim that um, what good is our life, uh, what good is death, rather, if, um, because we can't do mitzvahs after, the, the body can't do mitzvahs after death. So right. that's to go back to a question that, uh, an Indian, a matter that you brought up before, right. that... Um, 
you know that we, we the, what does the soul need the body? Yeah, the soul needs the body. The body needs the soul. Right, right. And, the soul uh, needs the body to do a mitzvah. Exactly. Yeah, you can't, yeah. can't you can't accumulate the, the good the, the 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 deeds to to complete the mission of the soul unless the body's alive. So what right. is asking that King David is asking that question of God. God, you really want me to die at the hands of somebody at, at this age? What what what's going to happen? My soul's mission won't be accomplished. Yeah. Good. Good. Thanks for sharing that. All right, Adira. I want to fewer people to ask this question, but everything you had said so far about you know how the soul doesn't die and how and how we are we are souls that have that bodies and that we're more like and that death isn't really the end. With that information in mind, how could one fear death? Like, I stopped fearing death when I was 16. I realized that it was a beautiful part of life, that it was life in a way we just don't know it. And I'm more afraid of Mashiach coming than I am with death. I want to die first before Mashiach comes because I don't want to experience Mashiach. Don't give yourself an eye in What? Don't give yourself an eye in horror. I know that death is going to be good. I know that this is going to be good. I'm looking forward to learning more. Adira, listen, every, everyone's got their perspective. And, 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 and I think it's important to, um, to honor both perspectives. A perspective of, of a fear of death, but also a perspective of, 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 of curiosity for, for what lies on the other side. And I think, I think both are valid and both resonate and both make sense. And I think, you know, all of us are on one, uh, leaning toward one side or the other. The important thing of today's class. Before we have Mashiach. I hear you. The important thing to take away, I think, from today's class, what I'm taking away from it, is the understanding of what life really is and how eternal the soul is, how notwithstanding that there is an important mission that we're doing, and, and also the fact that we have a choice every moment of the day. Are we choosing life? In other words, the things that are eternal. Or are we doing things that have a shelf life that won't matter much, you know, in, uh, after 120? And that's a, call, that's a call to action right now, right? Are we living this moment? All right, with that, I'm going to sign off. I, I thank you all for joining. Thank you all for staying. Have a wonderful evening. It's great to see you all to good health, and Thank to life. L'chaim. We'll see you all. See you soon. Take care, everybody. All right.